All right. Today we're going to start on the general prologue of the Canterbury Tales, and we'll finish it up in the next session. So let's get busy. Um, now, you probably noticed that this is very different from the English you're used to reading. Uh, it would have sounded a bit different, too. Uh, Chaucer was on the other side of what linguists call the great vowel shift. It was a change in the way that long vowels sounded, and that and some other things uh, made it quite different from modern English. Uh, the opening of, to give you some sense of, of how Chaucer might have sounded in his own time. Let me, let me read the the opening verse paragraph in in a, uh, my my pitiful version of a Middle English accent. One that April with his sure sota, the droughts of March hath pierced to rota, and bathed every vein in sweet liquor, of which vertu engendered is the flour. When Zephyrus ache with his sweaty breath, in spirit hath in every hold and hath, the tender crop is, and the young Esoni hath in the ram his heavy cause irony, and smaller fallers mock and melodia, that sleepen all the night with open ear. So pricketh him not sure in her courages, than longen folk to go on pilgrimages, and palmers for to second stronger strands, to fern halls, and coth in sundry lawns, and specially from every sheer's ende of Angeland to Canterbury they wende, the holy blissful Martha for to seke, that them has hopen one that they were seke. So that's kind of what. Chaucer's Middle English would have sounded like. Uh, when you're reading it, again, it helps a lot to read it out loud. Don't try to read it out loud in a Middle English accent, but just read it out loud and try to translate the words into modern English with the help of the glosses as you're going. So as I'm reading those opening lines, I'm thinking, when, when is when, when that April with his showers fresh, it says, the drought of March hath pierced to the root, and bathed every vein in such liquor, liquid, of which virtue engendered is the flower, when Zephyrus also, with his sweet breath, inspired has in every holt and heth the tender crops, and the young sun hath in the ram his half-course run, and small fowls make melody that sleep all the night with open eye, so pricketh them nature in their courages, their hearts. Then long folk to go on pilgrimages, and palmers for to seek strange strands, and fern, strange halls, faraway halls, uh, known in sundry various lands, and specially from every shire's end of England to Canterbury they wend, the holy blissful martyr for to seek, that them hath helped when that they were sick. So if you read it like that, uh, it, you know, it suddenly becomes a lot a lot easier. I mean, there's still things you'll need footnotes to help understand. but And once you get the hang of it, you'll see it becomes, you know, fairly straightforward. Sooner than you think, you'll be reading Middle English uh, like a pro. But let's look at this, these opening lines, these first 18 lines. Um, it starts out, um, it, it's April, right? The, and it's raining in April. It's springtime, new life. Nature is, is coming back. 
um, from the, the, there's been a drought of March and now there's a showers uh, of of April, um, and the, the the wind is blowing, the the flowers are blooming, the birds are singing, the everything is 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 in bloom is in uh, in flower here. Um, and when all that happens, then folk like to go on pilgrimages. Well, that's an odd transition if you think about it. All the thing, no, there's nothing overtly spiritual about anything that he said in the, those you know, opening eleven lines. So the then is kind of strange. Well, why is it that then they like to go on pilgrimages? And so from the very opening of the of the poem, there's this odd intersection of of religious and secular motives. Um, well, they go on pilgrimages because the weather's good, but will they also go on pilgrimages because they want to express their religious devotion. Um, and pilgrimages were, were, they were a thing in the Middle Ages. Uh, it was a kind of a, a tourism. Um, it was religious, but it wasn't it wasn't necessarily more religious than a you know a, a church picnic might be. Uh, yes, it's sanctioned by the church, and there are other church folks there. But it, you know the, the the activity itself isn't particularly one of religious devotion. Um, notice too that there are all of these contrasts that are kind of uh, put into this opening. You have, again, the showers of April and the drought of March, the, the wet and the dry. Um, you have, you know, the, the sky and the earth. Um, you have male and female. April, um, uh, you know, April and March. April is, it's a girl's name. March, Mars, the god of war, is male. Um, you have fertile and infertile, right? The the, the dry ground has been uh, in made made to bear fruit. Um, you have a, a pagan and Christian, right? You have they talk about the the constellations and all this, but they also talk about the uh, Christian ideas. Um, so there's a lot, and at the end, sickness and health. Right? The the reason that they're going to thank. Uh, the Canterbury, the cathedral there, is that that's where the, the martyr Thomas a. Beckett was uh, killed, and he's who they prayed to when they were sick, and they got better, so they want to thank him. So sickness and health, male and female, pagan and Christian, wet and dry, up and down, sky, uh, heaven and earth, uh, all of those different kinds of, of dichotomies are working there, just in those opening 18 lines. And they're all meeting up at London in Southwark. That's the south bank of, of London, south of the Thames River, um, at an inn, the Tabard. Um, and they meet all these people when they come together. There's a, a nine and uh, twenty. And then the narrator just goes through and starts describing them. And he starts with the knight. That's very appropriate. The knight was the highest ranking person in society who's here. I mean, obviously he's not the king, but he's as close as this group is going to get to it. So let's look at what they say about the knight. First of all, notice how often the word worthy is used. Uh, full worthy he was in his Lord's War um, and ever honored for his worthiness. Uh, 
the the same worthy knight had been also at so and so. Uh, he were uh, uh, and though that he were worthy, he was wise. Um, he keeps calling him a, a worthy knight. Um, you know, first line is a knight there was, and that a worthy man. So that tells you what he thinks about the knight. He's he's a worthy person. Notice too that it says very very little until the very end about his physical appearance. It's about his history. It's about what he's done. Um, and also, this is a, a key to almost all of the pilgrims, is what is it that they love? What is it that they, it motivates them? And for the knight, he tells us right off, um, uh, he, he loved chivalry, line 45, truth and honor, freedom and courtesy. Well, those are all the things that a knight should love. The knight is one of a, a few, there are three or four in here that are really kind of ideal portraits. Uh, they're, they're real paragons of virtue. Um, and he lists all of the, the places that the knight has been fighting. And this is like a, a catalog of all of the, the crusades that were going on in this time. It's hard to believe that an actual person could have been at them all. It would be like you know talking about a, a World War II hero and saying, yes, he was in uh, he was in Europe and in Italy and in North Africa and in the uh, uh, in Iwo Jima and you know all, you know well nobody was actually there for all those things. But the idea is that this is a knight who's been all over the place and done all these things. He's not a real person, but that represents the kind of the uh, fierceness of his dedication. And Chaucer sums him up around line 73. He was a, a very, a true, a perfect, gentle knight. Um, he says, but for to tell you of his array, so finally, we at the very end, we get, oh yeah, what did he look like? His horse were good, but he uh, he was not Gay, you know, so in the other, he's not is a good horse, but not you know flashy. Uh, a fustian he wore, um, Grippon, all besmotted with his uh, with his halberdin, for he was late come from the uh, from the voyage, uh, and went da- uh, for to don his pilgrimage. So it's saying there that. His clothing was kind of tattered and torn, and kind of you know he hadn't cleaned his armor and everything because he was coming right on his pilgrimage. So the image you get there is somebody who's very serious, almost um, almost monastic in his devotion uh, to to the cause. Um, again, it's a very uh, um, he's a worthy knight. That's what Chaucer keeps saying. And then the next we meet his son, the squire. Now, the, the squire is almost, this is almost a stereotypical image from the Middle Ages of a squire. He he's call him a, calls him a lusty bachelor. Uh, he's got curly hair. He's twenty years old. He sings uh, uh, love songs. Uh, you know, he's as fresh as is the month of May. Um, uh, he's uh, kind of the ideal young knight in training. Um, then the yeoman uh, is the servant, that the other servant that the um, knight has with him, and he's kind of a Robin Hood figure, clad in coat and hood of green. He's got a bow and arrow. Uh, he's, he's a hunter. He's a forester. Um, and it also points out that um, uh, the yeoman had he, 
uh, that is the night, and servants no more at that time, for he lists, he liked to ride so. So this is also telling us something about the night. Uh, you know, knights would usually have a big entourage with them. It's like celebrities do today. You know, whenever they go out, there are you know the whole crowd of uh, their posse around them. But he just has his son and one servant. That's all he has. And it's not because he's poor. It's not because he couldn't afford more people. It's because that he he likes that. I mean, he, this is a a, a a very serious person. The knight. So now that represents. Those three are kind of in the the category of the uh, the top echelon of society. They're the the rulers, uh, the those who fight in the uh, the medieval estates, uh, the, the the knight and his squire and his yeoman. Now we move to the second estate of the clergy, uh, the ones who rule over people's spiritual lives, and the first one, and again. Chaucer is going in a kind of good hierarchical fashion. Uh, he starts with the prioress, who is kind of a mother superior. She would have been a, a leader uh, in, in her nunnery. Now, if the key word in the knight's portrait is worthy, the key word in the prioress's uh, portrait is full. She was full, simple, and coy. Her nose, uh, you know, she uh, it tuned in her nose full seemly, and uh, freshness she spake full fair and feistily. Uh, the, the full is the idea. Now, notice what it says about her. And notice, too, that, you know, the, the Chaucer, the, the narrator, is very complimentary and enthusiastic about all these people. Uh, so he talks about this woman, Madame Eglantine, that's a very romantic name, you know, white and red roses. Um, she's very sweet. Her, her greatest oath was but by St. Loy, so she doesn't swear. Um, full well she sung. She had a beautiful singing voice, though it's kind of nasally. She sings through her nose. Uh, she speaks French. But she doesn't actually speak the French they speak in Paris. She speaks kind of the, uh, the as she says, the Stratford version of French. Um, and it spends a long time talking about her table manners and how dainty she was and how carefully she kept the food, uh, you know, from uh, uh, falling on you know any crumbs or anything. Um, it says, in courtesy, was set full much her lest. That is her um, her chief delight. Um, now, none of those are necessarily bad things, but they're odd things to be praising a nun for, right? Think about it today. If you said, uh, I, you know, I know this woman and she's she's a nun. I said, oh, what's she like? She has the best table manners. Really? That's that's the first thing you think of when you sing the nun. Well, it is for it is for this one for Madame Eglantine, um, and, and so it, it goes on this and um, look around line one uh, uh, forty of court. Uh, it says the cheer of court and had been uh, uh, dignified of manner and to be holden. Uh, Dignity of reverence, but for to speaking of her conscience. Oh, okay. Finally, we're going to talk about her spiritual state. For to speak of her conscience, she was so charitable and so piteous. She would weep if that she saw a mouse caught in a trap, if it were dead or bled. 
of small hounds had she that she fed with roasted flesh or milk and wassail bread. Okay, so this is her conscience that she cries when she sees a a mouse hurt? Again, nothing wrong with that on its own, but shouldn't there be something more spiritually dignified about the conscience of a, a nun, particularly a, a prioress, uh, you know, the, the mother superior here? Um, and near the end, it talks about her, her forehead was a span broad. That's a, the length of a, your palm. That's a, that's a big forehead. Uh, it, it was almost a span abroad, I trow, for hardily she was not undergrow. Now that's a kind of an understatement. That means she's a big woman. Uh, so maybe her table manners are so good because she gets a lot of practice at eating. Um, and the last little detail it has of her is this charm that she has. Um, he said on a little gold locket, a, a crowned A, and after Amor Vincit Omnia, love conquers all. Well, that's a very nicely ambiguous um, motto. Uh, you know, if you're talking about God's love, that sounds good, but if you're talking about romantic love, that's not something that would be appropriate for a nun. And as typically throughout this, Chaucer doesn't tell us which way we're supposed to respond to that. He just kind of presents it. He's very enthusiastic. He thinks it's great, but he leaves open a lot of room for interpretation. Um, we get to the monk now. Now, these are the kinds of uh, these portraits in most estates satire. It would just be a straightforward invective about, well, we have these nuns who care more about their table manners than uh, ministering to the poor. Chaucer doesn't do that. He does. He never has a criticism for any of these pilgrims. He's always saying how great they are. He forces the reader to make those conclusions and understand, you know, the the deficiencies of these pilgrims. Next, we have the monk. Uh, a monk there was, a fair and for the mastery, an outrider that loved venery, a manly man to have been an abbot able. Full, uh, full many a dainty horse had he in stable. Okay, again, we've got a monk. Monks live in a monastery, and the kind of the key thing about a monastery is that you're kind of isolated there. You go to a monastery to be alone with God. This guy is not doing that. He is an outrider. He's riding out all the time. He loves venery. He loves hunting. He's a manly man. Again, nothing wrong with that, but if you, you know, we're saying, oh, I know this monk, he's, he's a wonderful fellow, well, he's a real manly man, a real man's man. Well, that's probably not the best virtue for a monk. And notice that he actively rejects the the strictures of, of a monastic order, um, and the, the narrator kind of agrees with him. Line 184, he said, What should he study and make himself wood, you know, crazy, upon a book and cloister always to pour or swink, or, or swink with his hands and labor as Austin bit? How shall, how shall the world be served? I uh, at Austin have his swink to him reserved. Therefore, he was a pricasseur, a right. 
So he's saying, yeah, why should he spend time in the monastery, you know, praying and talking to God and all that? He, he should be out there in the world, you know, riding and hunting and having fun. Uh, and again, the the narrator finds that, you know, perfectly acceptable. And now we get to a friar, um, line uh, uh, 207. A friar there was, a wanton and a merry, a limiter, a full, uh, a full solemn man. In all the orders uh, for is none that can so much of diligence and fair la- uh, language. He had made full many a marriage of young women at his own cost. All right, now already there should be some little red flags here. Wanton is a kind of a very dangerous word for a friar. Now, he's a friar, he's a, he's a limitor, that is, a, a beggar. He had a certain limit in which, he, uh, territory in which he was allowed to, to uh, beg for his living. Um, now, all this, this, again, this detail, he'd made full many a marriage of young women at his own cost. So basically, he paid for the wedding for all these young women in his parish. Why was he doing that? Why did he need all of these young women to get married suddenly? Um, again, the narrator never picks up on that. He just reports it to us. And he tells us that he was an easy man to give penance. Uh, there was no wist to have uh, a good pittance. Uh, for unto a poor order, for to give is sign that a man is well you shrive. So what he's saying there is that he he would hear people's confessions and he would give them a very easy penance for their sins if they gave him money. And he said, well, of course, because that shows that they were, you know, really serious about it. They were giving money. And he says that uh, for many a man so hard is of his heart that he may not weep, though am sore smart. I mean, he's not going to cry even though he feels sorry. He says, therefore, instead of weeping and prayers, men might give silver to the poor friars. So he, and again, the narrator kind of echoes whatever it is that the pilgrim tells them. So this is his rationale. Look, some people don't go into all this crying and weeping and all that, uh, but giving me silver shows how how sorry they are. Um, Line 240. He knew the taverns well in every town. Again, not something that you should say in praise of a friar. And uh, look around uh, 255. For though a widow had not a show, a shoe, so pleasant was his impricipio, yet would he have a furthing ere he went. So he's going to a poor widow who doesn't even have money to buy shoes, and he's going to weasel some money out of her. And again, this is said by the narrator. Oh, this is so great. It's not a very great portrait. Um, so this is the. these are the three portraits we get of the clergy here. Um, and they're kind of all negative. Now, we'll see some clergymen a little bit later, uh, but these are all giving a very kind of, of bleak picture of the state of the church in Chaucer's time. And now, next it moves on to the the third estate, uh, which was you know pretty much all which 90 90% of the people and these were the, uh, the the workers we start with the merchant um, the merchant is an almost you know kind of completely uh, anonymous portrait uh, he, in fact it says he can't even um, recall remember his name uh, he just kind of fades into the background 
But then we get to the, the clerk around line uh, 287, a clerk there was of Oxenford also, that unto logic had it long ago, as lean was his horse as his rake, and he was not right fat, I undertake. Um, so he's got a, he's the, this is the, again, stereotypical impoverished scholar. Um, he's, he's going to Oxford. Yes, they had, they, they had scholars at Oxford even way back then. Um, he studies logic. And the mention of the horse, you'll see in, in several of these portraits, Chaucer will mention horses, uh, and they always tell us something about the, the, the status of the person in very much the same way that what car you ride today tells you a lot about a person and their social status. Uh, the kind of horse that you rode in the Middle Ages, it was the same thing. It told you kind of where you were in the, in the order of society. Um, and it says that the, um, the, the clerk, uh, for him was lever. He would rather have at his bed's head twenty books clad in black or red of Aristotle and his philosophy than robes rich or uh, filthy or gay sautry or fiddle or gay sautry. So he he's, doesn't make a lot of money because he's only interested in learning. Um, yet he had but little uh, gold in coffer. But all that he might of his uh, friend's hint, that is, take on books and on learning, he had spent. Now, the, the clerk is another one of these kind of, of, of ideal portraits. He's kind of the perfect clerk. Um, the clerk was an educated man who didn't go into the clergy. Um, and so, in a way, the clerk is kind of a condemnation of the clergy as well. Um, so he knows how to read and write like a like a clergyman would, but he is um, he, he's getting work doing something else, and they, they needed that. Though Chaucer was a clerk, he he was a, a government bureaucrat basically. Um, and it says of the clerk of study took he most cure and most heed. Line three hundred five. Um, he says, and gladly would he learn and gladly teach. Uh, so this is this is a guy who's just in it for the the knowledge. You know, you gotta like this guy. Um, then we get to the lawyer, the sergeant of the law, um, and one little note in his description says, "Nowhere so busy a man as he there Nas, and yet he seemed busier than he was." Uh, we've all known people like that, right? You know, they, they make a big show of being busy all the time, but they're not actually getting a whole lot done. Well, that's kind of what the, the sergeant at law is like. Another thing to notice about the sergeant of law's portrait is how full it is of the of you know, basically legal jargon. Um, uh, he seemed such, his words were in so wise, justice he was... Uh, he was full often in a size by patent and by plain commission for his science and for his high renown of fees and robes had he many won so great a purchaser was no, were nowhere none all was fee simple to him in effect so a lot of those words you know fee simple a size um, uh, patent uh, plain commission uh, all of those are kind of legal terms and it gives us the, the sense that the narrator is 
picking up the language of the people that he is describing. We've seen several times with the with the clergy that he is he's kind of. Uh, parroting back their uh, justifications for how they live their lives, and here he seems to be picking up on the the sergeant of law's legal vocabulary. Um, so you get the, the impression that uh, uh, again the narrator is a kind of a uh, almost a mirror. He's just reflecting back whatever the pilgrims are giving to him. Now, the Franklin uh, and the the Franklin is kind of a prosperous country gentleman. Uh, it's an interesting portrait. Let's look at the beginning of this. So Franklin was in his company, so he's traveling with the, the lawyer. White was his beard, as is the daisy. Of his complexion, he was sanguine. Well loved he by the morrow, a sop in wine. So in the morning, he likes a little bread dipped in wine. To live in delight was evermore his want, his want, what he wanted. For he was Epicurus' own son. Epicurus is the hedonistic ancient philosopher uh, that held opinion that plain delight was very felicity perfect. A householder, and that a great he was. St. Julian he was in his county. His bread, his ale, was always after after on, always of the highest quality. Um, So, now here again... This is a portrait that you can take, and in fact, different uh, interpreters have taken very different ways. It is, given the kind of the, the the subtle way that Chaucer's narration works, are we praising this Franklin or are we criticizing him? I mean, a lot of it sounds great, right? Um, it, it, later, he says it snowed in his house of meat and drink, so it was practically raining good food in his house. Um, well, that sounds good. On the other hand, all of this kind of talk about Epicurus, uh, Epicurean philosophy, oh, maybe that's not such a good idea. Uh, notice, too, it mentions that his temperament was sanguine. Now, this is something that came in in the, kind of the medical ideas of the time, that there were four humors or fluids in the body that... Uh, controlled your health and your personality and sanguine was blood so if you if blood were the dominant fluid in your body then you were kind of happy-go-lucky a good man um if uh you also might you might be melancholic if black bile was the main uh uh fluid humor in your body and that made you melancholy and depressed and all of that um this is actually part of the theory of, of bleeding that they did in the Middle Ages. You know, would they, when you were sick, they would uh, use leeches or just a knife and drain blood out of you, uh, thinking that, well, you've got all these bad humors in you, and if we just drain enough of the bad humors out, then you'll be okay. Um, miraculously, there were people who survived this. Um, and ju- just think what... You know, people in a, in a thousand years will think about our medical practices. But anyway, we've got this sanguine Franklin. Um, it snowed meat and drink in his house. And you can read 
you know different uh, commentaries on the on the general prologue and some say well this is clearly a negative portrait and others say well this is clearly a positive portrait yes he may go overboard in, in his his uh, uh, hedonism but he's very good for the community i mean he's giving all of, he, he doesn't hoard this he's not greedy about it he's he's a he's a, a host who gives this stuff to the people um, so again the, the the subtlety that chaucer's narrative technique has here allows for those different kinds of interpretation uh, now the next uh, we get this group of, of pilgrims there's the haberdasher the carpenter the web or the the weaver the dyer and the tapster the tapestry maker and they're they're treated as a group so they were all clothed they were clothed all in one livery one kind of Clothing. They're wearing a uniform, and a, a solemn and great fraternity. So they're kind of like in a union together. A, a full, fresh, and new. Their gear, a pike it was. For their knives were chapped not with brass, but all with silver, wrought full, clean, and well. Um, so it's pointing out they, they have they have knives. They don't have brass on them. They've got silver. So they're important people. Uh, they've got the right kind of knife here. Um, and th- th- this group, but again, they're, they're, they are kind of a group. They're kind of um, social climbers. They're trying to Im- impress people with their, uh, their their accomplishments. It's not clear from the portrait what their accomplishment was. And again, they seem to be just kind of a, 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 a mass of undifferentiated people. Uh, now they have with them a cook. Uh, and here's another kind of interesting little detail that Chaucer, or strategy that Chaucer uses. Uh, they had he would, to boil uh, the chickens and the marrow bones and uh, powder marchant tartan gallon gale. Well could he know a draught of London ale. He could roast and seethe and broil and fry, make Montreux and well bake a pie. But great harm was it uh, as it uh, thought me, that on his shin a mormal had a he, for a black manger that made he with his with the best. So almost all the portrait is is praising his skill in all the things he's able to cook, you know, and he, he knows he knows about London ale, he's got a roast chicken, uh, he, can, he can broil and fry, he's making pies, and so, oh yeah, he's got this horrible, blistering open sore on his leg. Oh, and he also makes a really good dessert. You know, again, it, it, it just almost slips it in there, uh, and but that obviously is going to color the entire feeling about this portrait um maybe you know you don't want this guy cooking for you uh, a, a mormal in other ways an ulcer but the, the the suggestion is that was probably something related to venereal disease all right we get to the shipman, and again chaucer finds a way to praise him in a way that shows us the deficiencies of the person. So it says, uh, line uh, 397, And certainly he was a good fellow. Full many a draught of wine had he uh, had he drawn uh, for from Bordeaux while the, uh, the chapman sleep. Okay. So he was a good fellow. He'd stolen so much wine from Bordeaux 
uh, okay, well, that's that's a good fellow, um, I guess. He says, of nice or fastidious conscience he took he no keep. If that he fought and had the uh, higher hand, by water he sent them home to every land. So this is, he's called a shipman, sounds more like a pirate or a smuggler, right? If he catches somebody and he wins, he throws them in the ocean, drowns them, send them home that way. Um, but of his craft, to wreck well his tides, his streams, and his uh, dangers, him him besides, his uh, an- his her- herbore, his anchorage, and his uh, moon, his uh, lodgermain, these uh, there were none such from Hull to Carthage, hardy uh, he was, and wise to undertake. So, and again, the, the portraits keep doing this, it slips back. Uh, okay, yes, he kills people, but he's also a really good sailor. He knows all of the tides, he knows all of the, uh, the, the secrets to making the... Um, um, sailing the ship and navigating the ship and getting wherever he needs to go. Um, and he's one of those who's been traveling at all, all these different places. Um, next we get to the the doctor of physics, the doctor. Uh, in all this world, this is line 414, uh, nor was there none him ilk, none, none him like, nobody like him, to speak in of physic and of surgery. Uh, for he was grounded in astronomy. Now here again, uh, you know, uh, Chaucer's subtle method here. First of all, it says, there was no one like him to talk of physic and of surgery. Well, no, that could be a backhanded compliment. Nobody could talk about medicine better than he could. That doesn't mean he was actually good at doing it. Um, and how do we know that he was so good in surgery? Well, he knew all about astronomy. That is, astrology. So, he, you know, he, he read the horoscopes, and that's how he, he fixed people. Um, again, now... You know, astrology was more widely believed then than it is now, I hope. They still publish the astrology columns in all the newspapers, so there must be somebody out there who still believes it. Um, but this is the kind of the basis for his medicine. And the narrator tells us, in line 421, he knew the cause of every malady, were it of hot or cold or moist or dry, and where engendered, and of what humor. He was a very perfect partisor, or practitioner. And notice that kind of echoes what he said about the knight, a very parfait, gentle knight. Here's a very parfait uh, practitioner of medicine. And notice, too, the um, the footnote that you get here on humors. This des- describes a little bit in more detail what the, the this theory was. Um, and they list them, the, the four humors. There's the melancholy humor, which is black bile, um, there's the sanguine, which is the blood. Uh, there's choleric, which was yellow bile. Uh, and there's choleric, which was angry and uh, uh, temper, you know, having having a temper. And phlegmatic, that was the uh, uh, phlegm. Uh, that's, you know, so like that's the watery one. Uh, so those were the ways that they thought about medicine and about personality. I mean, whichever uh, humor dominated you, determined your personality, whether you were choleric or sanguine or melancholy. And, of course, one might dominate more at one time than another. 
and um, so the doctor, you know, he knows all about this. Um, look at the end of his description. His study was but little on the Bible. In sanguine and in piercing, that is in red and blue, he was, uh, he clad was all, lined with taffeta and with sindal, and yet he was but easy of dispense. He kept that, uh, that he won in pestilence. Alright, so, uh, he's, he's, he doesn't spend a lot of money. He, he keeps the money that he won in pestilence. That's a really nice turn of phrase. All, you know, the pestilence, the disease is what gives him all this money. For gold in physic is a cordial. Therefore, he loved gold in special. Again, I think we have here the narrator is echoing something that the the pilgrim has said that the doctor of physic has said the reason i love gold is because you know it, it's it's good it's good for certain medicines that's why i like gold, want gold so much uh, of course i think the reader is free to think that well maybe there might be other reasons that he's so interested in gold um all right. Well, we've we've gone over about the first half of the uh, general prologue and looked at the pilgrims here. Uh, for next time, we're going to continue and uh, again go through them and, and think about how how the narrator is giving us information about them in, in subtle and in some obvious ways. And I'd like you also to pay particular attention to three of the portraits. Um, one is. These are the three pilgrims whose tales we're going to be reading later on. Uh, there's the wife of Bath, there's the miller, and finally the pardoner. All right. So look at those three pilgrims with particular care. Think about what their personality is like, and think, what kind of story do you think that they would be telling? What, will it, what do you expect their tales to be like? based on their portraits, and we'll see how they play out in, uh, later on. Uh, also, look at how the end of the general prologue sets up the, the basically the game of the Canterbury Tales. That is, they're going to have a storytelling contest. Uh, the host uh, proposes this for their, their journey to uh, Camelot to Camelot, uh, to uh, uh, Canterbury. Um, and think about what what are the criteria that he gives? What, what are, who's going to win? What, and what are the rules or the criteria by which they will win? What makes a good story? That's one of the, I think, most fundamental themes of the Canterbury Tales is what is a good story? How is it, what's a good storyteller? How does all of that work? And think about how the way the, the contest is set up sets that up. Uh, notice too, how do they pick who gets to go first and who gets to go first? And what is what significance does that have? Uh, all right, we'll end it there for today. Uh, thank you as always for your attention. Remember too that if you want to ask any questions, you can contact me at drmarkwomack at gmail.com. Uh, next time we'll be talking about the second half of the general prologue. So I will talk to you then.